Welcome to Legally 40-ish. I am Natasha Axelrod. And I am Allegra Rainier. We are two 40-ish attorneys and friends. Allegra loves celebrity gossip and reality TV. I love government and constitutional law. And every Monday, we break down legal issues in pop culture and politics in 40-ish minutes. We hope to show you that the law can be fun and even funny. Welcome back to another episode of Legally 40-ish. This is Allegra, and I am recording another solo podcast episode. Um, I was hoping Natasha would be able to record with me this week, but she is still on vacation. So I apologize that this episode is coming late and that it's coming with just me. Um, I would have loved to have done this together, but she should be back next week and we'll have an episode together, hopefully, um, by mid next week. But because so much happened in pop culture legal news this week, and really since the last time I recorded, I kind of wanted to take just a little bit of time to touch on some of these stories that came out this week. So for this episode, it's going to be purely pop culture. Um, I will talk a little bit about Allison Mack, Bill Cosby, and a little update on the Erica Jane and Tom Girardi case. If you listened to last week's episode, thank you. Um, I appreciate everyone who took the time to listen. It was really difficult recording a solo podcast. It's the first time I had done anything like that. And I was a little hesitant to put it out. So I appreciate all of you that took the time to listen. And I appreciate everyone who gave me feedback. I did get a lot of feedback from people. So I appreciate that. And I hope that this week's episode is entertaining and that you get something out of it. All right, let's get started with the Allison Mack story. So if you don't know, or if you don't remember, Allison Mack um, is an actress and she was part of the Nexium cult. And there's a really great documentary called The Vow, highly recommend. Um, she played a key role in the Nexium cult and specifically this, I guess they would call it like a secret society, the DOS um, organization, which was just for women uh, within the Nexium group. Anyway, Allison was arrested along with Keith Ranieri, who was like the leader of Nexium. And yeah, it kind of sucks. We have a similar last name, but it's not the same. Spelled differently, not the same at all. But um, yeah, Allison actually, so little side note, I went to high school with her. Um, I went to a performing arts high school here in Orange County, and Allison also went there. She was, I want to say a couple grades older than me, but I did know her. I did socialize with her. So this is kind of crazy to have seen this whole story unfold. But to kind of, I'm not going to go back into the whole Nexium storyline and what that cult was about, but Allison was arrested and ultimately pleaded guilty to one count of racketeering and one count of racketeering conspiracy, which was predicated on conduct that included forced labor, extortion, sex trafficking, and wire fraud. So she pleaded guilty like I said, back in 2019. And then Keith Ranieri had went to trial. He did not 
take a plea deal. And he was actually sentenced to 120 years in prison. Um, so the two crimes that Allison pleaded guilty to carried terms of a maximum sentence of, I believe, 20 years each. Um, but the sentencing guidelines recommended a range of 14 to 17 and a half years in prison. And so kind of the way this works a lot of times is if you plead guilty, you have time before you're actually sentenced. And in that time, the there will be like a pre-sentencing report. You'll meet with you know probation officers. Um, people can write letters to support you. The victims can write letters to the court to say kind of what their position is. And the prosecution will ask the court to impose a certain sentence and the defense will ask the court to impose a certain sentence. And ultimately, um, in this case anyway, the judge had discretion um, in his sentencing. So the prosecutors actually asked the court to give her below the recommended sentencing range. So something less than the 14 to 17 and a half years. And they did that because she gave substantial assistance uh, to the government in their investigation and the ability to prosecute others involved. And then, of course, her attorneys asked for no jail time at all. So I actually pulled the sentencing memorandum from the court website, and it's pretty lengthy. It's about 10, 10 pages, but there's some portions of it that I just wanted to read because as I read it, I was reminded of how terrible her conduct was. Um, you kind of, or at least I kind of didn't really give it as much weight as I probably should have, um, mainly because Keith Ranieri was the leader of the group and you could see how he really manipulated everyone involved and it was so twisted, but I wanted to read a little bit of what the court wrote in the sentencing memorandum. So the court actually, the judge, when I say the court, I'm referring to the judge. The judge actually addresses Allison in the sentencing memorandum directly. Um, and so he says, you required your slaves to provide collateral, both as a price of admission and on a continuing basis in order to ensure their obedience and secrecy. The collateral that you extracted from your slaves included explicit photographs and videos, confessions and accusations that would damage them or their loved ones if released, and rights to significant financial assets. For example, one victim provided a sexually explicit video, credit card authorizations, a series of letters falsely alleging sexual abuse by a close family member, and the right to a family heirloom. She testified explicitly that she believed her collateral would be forfeited and made public if she reneged on her commitment to DOS. In other words, you demanded that these women give you the keys to the most intimate, personal, and valuable parts of themselves so that you could maintain power over them and have leverage to direct them to do anything you wanted. And what did you direct them to do using your leverage? You directed them to subject themselves to extreme sleep and food deprivation and geographical isolation and to perform uncompensated labor whenever asked, often for your own benefit or gain. You directed them to submit nude photographs of themselves and to be branded on their pubic areas with a symbol that unbeknownst to them included Mr. Ranieri's initials. 
and in several cases, you directed your slaves to engage in sexual contact with Mr. Ranieri. You used your leverage, your power over these women to recruit and groom them as sexual partners for Mr. Ranieri and to pressure them into engaging in sexual acts that, according to their testimony, they did not want to engage in and would not have engaged in voluntarily. I mean, those, I mean, those words are pretty powerful. I, I was kind of shocked reading that again and remembering all that she did. And so the judge goes on in, in the sentencing mem- memorandum, and it's pretty lengthy. Um, uh, here's another part that I think is, is important to, to remember. He says, You willingly enslaved, destabilized, and manipulated other women so that when they were at their most vulnerable, when they believed that they owed you total obedience, and that anything less than that would cause them serious personal and financial harm, when you had taken from them their sense of agency to make their own choices, you gave them, quote, special assignments to satisfy Mr. Ranieri's sexual interests. Mr. Ranieri could not have done that without you. You did that together. The evidence presented at his trial demonstrated that you were not a begrudging or passive enabler, but rather you were a willing and protective ally. So, I mean, when you're first reading this and you're seeing all of these comments that the judge is saying, I mean, I was surprised that after he goes on to describe all of this, that he only imposed a sentence of three years for each count, but to run at the same time. So for only a total of three years. Um, And then he goes on to talk about mitigating factors. And what that means is really just factors that would give him reason to give you, give Allison um, a lesser sentence. And so he talks about the fact that she was um, coerced and manipulated by Ranieri and that she too was manipulated and likely, you know, felt captive to him. So that was one of the, um, mitigating factors he identified and then he identifies the fact that she expressed remorse and contrition and that she's made significant progress towards rehabilitating herself and lastly the fact that she assisted the government with its investigation and prosecution and evidence that she gave them ultimately helped secure the conviction against Ranieri so um yeah all of that taken together the court decided to impose that sentence in addition to the three years in prison it will be followed by three years supervised release and a twenty thousand dollar fine and i believe additionally she has to perform community service when she is released so that's what happened with allison mack kind of wild um not kind of it's pretty crazy but if you haven't watched that docuseries The Vow. I do recommend it. If you're into culty stuff, I happen to be, so highly recommend. All right, in other news, which actually happened the same day that Allison Mack was sentenced, Bill Cosby's conviction for sexual assault was overturned. So obviously there was a lot of outrage about Bill Cosby's conviction being overturned. I understand the outrage, and I don't disagree. Um, In this situation, you know, the law has to be followed and we would never want someone to go to prison if their due process rights have been violated or any constitutional right has been violated. So 
upholding someone's constitutional rights is something that everyone should want, no matter the outcome, even though it's frustrating and disappointing. I'll give a little bit of background on what happened so that you can kind of understand what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's reasoning was in overturning the convictions. So in 2005, the district attorney, his last name is Castor, learned that Andrea Constan had reported that Bill Cosby had sexually assaulted her the year prior in 2004. After investigation of her claims, the DA determined that the case would unlikely result in a prosecution um, due to delay in reporting and a lack of corroborating forensic evidence. So DA Castor concluded that unless Cosby Cosby confessed, there was insufficient credible and admissible evidence related to the Constan incident that could be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. So in order to assist her in getting what he called some measure of justice, Castor decided that they would not prosecute Cosby for the incident involving her. um, And that would allow him to testify in a civil action, meaning he'd have to sit for a deposition and he wouldn't be able to invoke his fifth amendment right against self-incrimination. And so you've probably heard I plead the fifth. I plead the fifth. Well, what that means is we all have a constitutional right um, not to make any statements that would incriminate ourselves. So if Bill Cosby was going to called for deposition in a civil case and was questioned about um, anything that happened with Constan, he could just say, I plead the fifth. And he could refuse to answer questions because he has a right against self-incrimination. So um, the DA's thinking was, hey, if we decide not to prosecute him, he'll have to sit for a deposition in a civil case and he won't be allowed to invoke his Fifth Amendment right. So, unable to invoke this right not to testify in the civil proceedings, Cosby relied on the DA's um, decision not to prosecute him and he proceeded to provide four sworn depositions in a civil case. Um, During those depots, Cosby made several incriminating statements, including that he had given Constan Benadryl without telling her what it was, and then he engaged in sexual acts with her, and that in the past he had given quaalids to other women with whom he wanted to have sexual intercourse. So obviously those are self-incriminating statements, and he did that on the reliance that he was not going to be prosecuted, um, and, he, and he gave up his Fifth Amendment right to self-incrimination. So the interesting thing about this was that this was not a formal agreement. Um, There was nothing reduced to writing, meaning there was no like, hey, we won't prosecute you. You have to testify, that sort of thing. But um, as this issue came up at the trial level and while Cosby was going through his um, criminal proceedings, D.A. Castor um, testified that it, it was his intent to remove for all time the possibility of prosecuting um, Bill Cosby. So then fast forward to, I don't know when it was, like 2012, um, DA Castor's no longer in office and his successors decide that they're going to go ahead and prosecute Bill Cosby, that they did not feel bound by Castor's decision not to prosecute Cosby. And obviously there was nothing in writing, so they just figured, yeah, why not? We have no formal agreement, so we'll go ahead and we now think we have enough evidence and we're going to go ahead and bring charges. So 
after charges were brought against Cosby for the Constant incident, obviously that deposition testimony was used against him at his criminal trial. And as I just said a few minutes ago, um, this issue about the agreement not to prosecute came up at the trial level. And Cosby's attorneys brought a motion and the court actually denied the motion and they stated that there was no agreement and that the DA could not unilaterally confer immunity through his statement just by saying we're not going to prosecute you. Um, That immunity could only be conferred by a strict compliance with Pennsylvania's immunity statute, which, you know, logically, I guess, makes sense. But what the what the Supreme Court said, what the Supreme Pennsylvania Supreme Court said, is that when a prosecutor makes an unconditional promise of non-prosecution, and when the defendant relies upon that guarantee to the detriment of his constitutional right not to testify, the principle of fundamental fairness that undergirds due process of the law in our criminal justice system demands that the promise be enforced. So essentially, the court said, The DA gave an unconditional promise not to prosecute, and based on that promise, Bill Cosby gave up his constitutional right, and so therefore that promise had to be enforced. And so, you know, I do think that the court got it right here because this would allow district attorneys to lie, potentially, to criminal defendants and say, we won't prosecute you. You need to give a state. You can testify in that civil case, and then go ahead and... the defendant could give up their right to their Fifth Amendment right, and then that information could be later used to prosecute them. So, which is which is not due process, and we should all care about making sure that our constitutional rights are protected. So, even though I believe that the outcome ultimately is wrong, I believe that Bill Cosby should be in jail for his sexual assaults, I do believe that the court legally got it right here. Last story, and I will make it quick. We're back to Erica Jane, Erica Girardi, and I keep seeing headlines this week that say stuff like embezzlement victims can pursue collection lawsuits against Erica, and Tom's victims can collect money from Erica, those sorts of things, um, based on an order that was entered in the bankruptcy case. Well, It's just factually inaccurate. And it's so frustrating to see these clickbait headlines and then to see everyone run with them. Um, That's not accurate. So let me give a little quick background and then explain what actually happened in the bankruptcy action this week. So if you watched The Housewife and the Hustler, the documentary featured the Rui Gomez family. Well, the Rui Gomez family filed a lawsuit against Tom Girardi and his firm, Girardi Keys, back in 2019. The Rui Gomez family entered into a stipulated judgment, meaning it was an agreement by the defendants and the family for legal malpractice against Tom Girardi and Girardi Keys. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, the judgment was for $11 million. So this was back in 2020, when the judgment was entered in April of 2020. When you have a judgment against someone, you can pursue collections on that, right? So I have a judgment against you and I want to collect on that. I can. There are lots of ways to collect on a judgment. So the Rui Gomez family began their collection efforts. As part of the collection efforts, 
um, they were attempting to question Erica. It's called a debtor's examination. They wanted to question her about assets that she may have or have control of that belong to Tom Girardi. Remember, the judgment is against Tom Girardi and Girardi Keys, not against Erica. So as part of those collection efforts, they would have the opportunity to um, ask her questions, figure out where Tom's assets are, whether she has any of them. Well, Girardi Keese and Tom Girardi were forced into bankruptcy in December of 2020. And whenever a bankruptcy proceeding happens, it will stop. It's called stay. It will stay proceedings in a regular civil action. So when that bankruptcy started, that means that all collection efforts on that $11 million judgment had to be stopped, halted. All that happened this week was the trustee of the Tom Girardi estate and the Rui Gomez family entered into agreement. It's called a stipulation and order um, to allow the Rui Gomez family to continue those collection efforts in the state case, meaning they would be allowed to question Erica regarding any assets she may have that belongs to Tom. And they stipulated, they reached this agreement, and then they asked the court to sign off on it. And so the court did. The court signed off on that order. So all that really does doesn't change anything. just allows them to question her about property or assets that may belong to Tom Girardi. And Erica's obviously opposed to this because in the in the bankruptcy case, the Rua Gomez family is a creditor in the bankruptcy case, so they can still question Erica about the assets in the bankruptcy case as well. So to her, her point was that it was duplicative and unnecessary, but the court's going to allow it. That's all that really happened. That doesn't mean they can go after Erica's personal assets or go after Erica personally. It just means they can question her about Tom's assets and whether she may have possession of any of those. So that's what happened. Um, when Natasha gets back next week, we'll dive deeper into some of the ongoing stories. Obviously, there's a lot that happened with Brittany this week and things continue to happen. I believe there's court appearances coming up in that case. And obviously, the Girardi case is ongoing and evolving. And so we'll talk about that some more and other issues that have come up. And hopefully, we get you an episode with both of us next week. And thanks for listening again. I appreciate all of you who keep coming back. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for spending 40-ish minutes of your week with us. We would love to connect with you. So follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Legally40ish. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review.